CTSNet friends, welcome to this extremely special podcast. I'm delighted that today we're being joined by Sammy Syed, who is our fabulous congenital editor. We have so much for you today. We have three fabulous papers. We have a paper on pulmonotresia and intact uh, ventricular septum. We have a fabulous paper, Can You Stent a Retrograde Aortic Dissection and Disparities in Sophagectomy? We've got some brilliant videos, a really novel way to address a VSD. We've got a great residence video for aortic and mitral and the highlight I think is a wonderful video by Sammy Syed. So don't go away, thanks for tuning in and we'll get stuck into it. Thank you so much Sammy Syed for joining us, it's an absolute privilege to have you here. Um, Sammy Syed is a wonderful congenital surgeon. He is Chief of Paediatric and Adult Congenital Surgery at the Maria Ferreri uh, Children's Hospital in Westchester, which is in New York. Thank you so much for joining us, Sammy. Maybe we could start by just uh, getting you to say hi. Tell us all about your practice and, uh, and what you do uh, in New York. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Jules, for this uh, great opportunity and thanks to CTSNet for ongoing support. Um, uh, as you may have uh, mentioned, I'm a pediatric and adult uh, congenital heart surgeon, uh, currently the chief of uh, uh, Maria Ferrari Children with Chester Medical Center in New York. Uh, my practice currently is focused on congenital heart disease from neonates to elderly, uh, and I do the full spectrum. Um, and um, I um, moved to New York here last year where we started the program, and uh, we're getting busier and busier every day. Fantastic. And obviously, we love you, not just because you're our senior congenital editor, but I think you have uh, submitted over 50 surgical videos to CTSNet. So that's absolutely wonderful. And, and we're so pleased to have you uh, there. And uh, so we'll get stuck right in. And, uh, and because Sammy was here, we, we've chosen a few congenital uh, uh, papers. And the very first one that we wanted to profile is in this month's Annals of Thoracic Surgery. Uh, this is by Eva Chung and, uh, and the people at Cincinnati Children's Hospital with senior author Ilias Iliopoulos. And the title of it is uh, Procedural Outcomes of Pulmonary Atresia with Intact Ventricular Septum in Neonates. And this is a multi-center study. So they've got a really big group, 279 neonates with this particular 10 years of experience uh, and, uh, and they profiled the different ways you can fix this. So 28% had right ventricular decompression, 54% uh, of them had a systemic TPA shunt or just ductal shunt only, and 36 underwent both and 11 got transplants. Uh, the thing that struck me as a non-congenital surgery is that there is a really high complication rate that 20% have severe adverse outcomes. So this is really high risk surgery. Uh, including 8% mortality, 13% uh, CPR, 6% stroke, and a lot got mecha mechanical circulatory support. Um, and but, uh, so I thought that was really striking. And, and maybe Sammy, maybe tell us a little bit about what you thought about this paper and, and, and what you do for, for children like this. Um, I think uh, the, the, the advantage of the paper is um, the multi-center nature of it. Uh, it's uh, coming from a 19th center. Uh, uh, however, uh, there are several limitations for the for the paper. Uh, I think it's understood that the complication rate in this uh, 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 group of patients are uh, uh, not uncommon because 
uh, of the rarity of the illness and also the challenging nature of pulmonary atresia intact system uh, where uh, many patients may have uh, coronary artery fistula, coronary uh, uh, right ventricular dependent coronary circulation, et cetera. Uh, the paper really looked at uh, the very early outcomes, uh, and um, uh, what is striking is um, um, all the uh, authors on the paper are uh, from critical care and, and cardiology, um, with uh, uh, no surgeon actually on the paper. Um, the uh, uh, multicenter nature, although it's good when you have a rare illness like this, uh, but also we have to be careful about interpretation because uh, this is a very large heterogeneous group of patients with a very big spectrum with PAIVS. Um, and um, uh, there was no clear uh, definition for some of the um, uh, decision-making process is not, was not clear why these patients had a shunt versus a stent versus uh, RVD compression. Um, so it was very focused on just the early outcomes whatever the procedure was. But uh, what, what we don't know is why some group went to this versus the other approach. Um, the um, uh, RV-dependent coronary circulation, um, uh, the authors mentioned, um, unless the uh, report explicitly says RV-dependent coronary circulation, uh, so you can understand that there could be some patients who uh, uh, be missed. We, we don't have everybody who had uh, uh, RV-dependent coronary circulation. Um, also, they included bilateral coronary atresia, um, categorized as lift coronary atresia, so the, the, but this is too different uh, uh, severity. Um, the uh, uh, cath uh, preoperative was done only in 82% of the patient, not in everybody. Uh, so there, there is a possibility that you don't have all, all the spectrum, and also you have a very large uh, uh, heterogeneous group. Um, however, I see that the um, one of the messages that are actually important here, which was uh, written in a comment section, but not in the conclusion, which is those patients who had uh, RVD compression in addition to additional source of pulmonary blood flow, like a shunt or a BDA stent, uh, did actually better compared to those who had RVD compression only or uh, shunt or stent only. And the authors explain the theory behind that when you have two uh, uh, pulmonary blood flow sources. Uh, and I, I would have expected this something to go into the conclusion of the paper. Um, so um, overall, I think it's, 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 uh, it gives an idea about how challenging this group of patients uh, but also it doesn't include any um, preterm or low weight. Um, so these are some of the challenges that we don't, we, we see, but we don't know what the right answer for them. Um, and as, as you uh, may have asked, um, how do we manage this? It, it really depends on the anatomy and the uh, uh, z-score of the tricuspid valve and the size, uh, but it can range from a two ventricle or a one and a half ventricle repair into a single ventricle repair. So it's a very large uh, spectrum. Well, thank you very much for that insight. Certainly uh, amazing to get your view from that uh, and well done. And, uh, and a great paper to check out, but uh, that's wonderful. Let's move on. And, uh, and I think uh, Sammy and I, we've both done dissections in the past. Uh, luckily we have moved on, but, uh, but I've always dreamed of the day when we never need to do a surgical aortic dissection repair. And this paper, selected by the EAX staff, is from Osaka in Japan by Ozumi 
uh, and uh, Matsuda from Osaka in Japan. And it's in the European Journal uh, this month. And it says the surgical outcome of thoracic endovascular aortic repair for retrograde Stanford type A dissection. And, uh, and I thought, wow, isn't this great? Maybe we'll finally be able to not repair these. But, but actually, when you look at this paper, out of 359 patients that they have uh, found to have a retrograde type A dissection uh, over the course of eight years, um, 83 were finally diagnosed as the retrograde. And actually, this paper is just on a very small group, just 18, in which they didn't do surgical repair on. Now, what were these surgical repairs? Well, well mostly the tear was, was fairly distal. There was only um, two in, in the first zone uh, and a couple in zone two. And most were after the subclavian of the artery. So most of them could just bang a T-var stent in. They did do a few debranching. Uh, and then uh, in this very, very select group, they, they actually had excellent outcomes. They, they showed uh, very little complications. One person got a bit of an endo leak. One person did need uh, open conversion. But other than that, uh, they thrombosed the false lumens. The patients got discharged and it did quite well. So only 18 patients. Uh, it's the beginnings of maybe reducing the amount of patients we need to operate on. Uh, and uh, so it's so an interesting paper to take a look at. Sammy, what was your thoughts on this paper? I, I agree with you, Joel. Uh, I think it was a, it was a nice um, uh, article, um, despite a small group of patients, but uh, it, it opened uh, our minds that this is a, is a good option for uh, selected patients. And the authors uh, uh, indicated the, the way of selection uh, in the manuscript um, and it has to be clearly the primary entry site has to be in the descending uh, 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 water, uh, visualized on the on the preoperative CT and could be easily closed by by the stent. In addition, they they still say that the primary treatment is still open uh, for some patients who uh, are not uh, uh, a candidate for for this approach. However, I think the outcomes are quite good actually for this type of challenging uh, 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 disease. Uh, but still, we need a long-term follow-up to, to determine um, the value of this approach. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, so watch this space. One day, they'll invent a stent uh, for type A dissection, but not, not quite today. Um, so the third paper we've got for you uh, is really interesting, quite different paper to the others. Uh, and this paper was by Christine Alvarado, Christopher Toe, uh, and it was on... Uh, the racial socioeconomic disparities that affect access to thoracic surgeons for esophagectomy. So really very interesting. This was from the Cleveland Medical Center in the USA. And uh, they went and looked at the Premier Healthcare Database to have a look for people having an esophagectomy. Uh, this is between 2015 and 2019, so before the pandemic. They got nearly a 1,000 patients in America. Um, and the really interesting thing is only half, 43%, were treated by a thoracic surgeon and over half were treated by non-thoracic surgeons, by general surgeons, uh, and they looked into the reasons for this. Um, and actually, they were really quite shocking. Um, so, so basically, uninsured versus insured, uh, you, you were three times uh, more likely to see a thoracic surgeon if you're insured. Um, the not the other race other than uh, white American was 1.7 versus 8%, rural hospital versus urban, 3% versus 13%. 
metastatic cancer, thoracic surgeons will operate on you significantly less uh, if you have metastatic cancer and white patients uh, were much more likely uh, to see a thoracic surgeon than not. So, so a really stark uh, indication of, of uh, demographic change on whether or not you're going to see the very best surgeon for your esophagectomy. And, and Sammy, I wonder what you think about this disparity in America as being there in America and whether you see this in congenital or cardiac surgery as well, or is this specific to uh, esophagectomy? Um, no, I think we see this uh, in congenital heart disease and in children undergoing pediatric cardiac surgery. Uh, in fact, there are several literature uh, recently uh, as we looked at the uh, trends in the racial, ethnic, uh, uh, and healthcare disparities uh, associated with uh, pediatric cardiac surgery outcomes. Um, and it goes both ways. Um, um, there's clear uh, differences. Uh, however, in some literature, there was no mortality difference, uh, but there could be a difference in the length of stay or the morbidities, um, et cetera. So I think it's, uh, uh, it's important to um, always think that, that, that this may affect uh, the way we treat the uh, patients and the way the patient can get access to uh, cardiac surgeons. Wow, that really is amazing in 2023 that we have these disparities. And, uh, and I wonder what you at home think. In your country, do you get major disparities? I, I truly think in the UK, uh, we do have quite an even access to, to surgery. Uh, that's because of our national health system. It's not perfect, but at least it's maybe a little bit, bit uh, even. So maybe what's it like in your country? Maybe uh, check it out. Give, give us a little link in the show notes below and tell us what you found in your country. So now we're going to have a little uh, handover to Cam Lind, and she's going to tell you what you can find in the Job Setter on CTSNet this week. Are you on the lookout for a new job in cardiothoracic surgery? Hundreds of open positions are waiting for you at CTSNet's Career Center. Through CTSNet.org, you can browse jobs and sign up for custom job alerts direct to your inbox. For an even more enhanced experience, create a free account and upload your resume so employers and recruiters can find you. Happy job hunting. Now, back to the beat. Thank you, Cam, for giving us that overview uh, of what's available on our job center. So we've got three absolutely wonderful videos for you. You're gonna find these fascinating. And the first one, the first one really stood out for me. I thought this is brilliant. I'd never heard of this before. Uh, and this was for VSDs, the thing we absolutely hate. Fills our heart with horror when the cardiologist phones you with a VSD and you go, oh my God. But this is a brilliant one. This is a novel method. This is by Mario Torre at the University of Naples uh, and Enrico Costioni. Uh, and it says, post-infarction VSD closure without a ventriculotomy, not cutting into the ventricle. And I thought, wow, this is going to be amazing. And it absolutely is. Um, so they've created a method by which instead of cutting the, the ventricle, they open up the aorta, they open up the tricuspid, and they do the operation through these two access sites. They create uh, this brilliant uh, three-layered patch 
uh, and uh, on, on, on the ventricular side, they create another patch uh, that they access through the tricuspid, uh, and they show us how they very cleverly suture it in uh, with some really good animation, some really good graphics. And I thought, absolutely fantastic. Uh, and then basically, you know, what's what's there to bleed? Uh, just closing the autotomy line and closing the right atrial line. So, so really wonderful, really interesting. And uh, uh, Sammy, what did you think of this as a congenital surgeon? Uh, I think it's uh, it's a good thought. Um, however, we've done uh, several um, 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 similar to uh, these. I think the literature has in the congenital uh, uh, world, especially in the multiple muscular ventricular septal defect, where you actually uh, close it in a way as if you're putting a device. So the two patch and you pass uh, the uh, uh, string through the, the uh, one side of the septum to the other. Uh, so I think it's uh, putting this into the adult world is uh, definitely worth to think about it, uh, try to avoid the ventriculotomy. Uh, but I will expect uh, it's not possible with all uh, post-infarcted VSD in, in this area because, as you can see, probably may need to be um, in a, in a higher location to be able to be accessible uh, in an adult heart compared to a child heart. Uh, but definitely it's a technique that's uh, uh, worth to think about in some of these uh, situations. And, and, and to me, I've never even considered doing this, but, but do you have any hints and tips about how to get the best access possible through the tricuspid or through the aortic valve? Is it just good exposure or, or is it more case selection, make sure it's high and small as a defect? Uh, I think it's uh, very important to look at the images uh, pre-op uh, and uh, uh, maybe consider a cross-sectional image like a CT uh, to be able to um, get a, a, an exact measurement for the defect as the authors uh, explain and uh, to design your, your uh, patch in a way that's uh, it's at least uh, two or three centimeter bigger than the actual defect so you don't have any residual. Um, so I think um, it uh, it's definitely needs a planning uh, uh, carefully pre-op. Great, fantastic. And as ever, the congenital surgeons are ahead of us adults. Surgeons uh, done it before. And uh, so, yeah, we've got so much to learn through uh, through sharing our experiences. So thank you very much for that. The second video is absolutely wonderful, especially if you're a trainee, a resident, and uh, you would like to see a beautifully performed aortic valve replacement and mitral valve replacement. Tom Verbellen um, has done a wonderful video with the help of Medtronic. He put a head camera on. It's a live in a box. So he's actually narrating it and talking about it as he does an aortic valve replacement and a mitral. And, and you literally feel like you're the surgeon. So he places an, an Avalus uh, Medtronic valve into the aortic position and a mosaic uh, into the mitral. Just really nice, really clear. Um, it's, it's just about exactly the right length. And uh, I highly recommend this for anybody who just wants to see one of these. Maybe you're soon going to be doing your first one. Uh, I would certainly recommend this. What did you think about this, uh, Sammy? I think Dr. Verbellen uh, did a great job uh, uh, with a clear video showing uh, a double valve replacement, the steps uh, that are very good for uh, residents and fellows to uh, consider. And he also mentioned uh, a few uh, tips uh, and pitfalls as he putting the valves in, uh, sizing, which to do first and why, et cetera. So I think it was, it was very educational.
Absolutely. So check out that video, uh, which is available right now on our front page on CTSnet. So, Sammy, it's the highlight, the very best video probably of the year. Who knows? Uh, but, uh, but, but you've just submitted this brilliant video and we're going to be profiling it this week, uh, all about anomalous aortic origin of the right coronary artery uh, from the wrong sinus of Valsalva. And you give us two aortics, two strategies about that. So maybe tell us about this issue, how common it is, and tell us about your video. Uh, I, I think uh, the way we, we thought to make this video this time is uh, anomalous origin of the right coronary artery from the left uh, sinus of Valsalva is actually diagnosed more frequent than we think because uh, patients frequently get cross-sectional images and here you go, you have an anomalous coronary, what to do with it? Uh, we did not want to go into the controversy about when to operate and what the decision rather than to focus on the technique. There are two famous techniques that we try to put them together in one video so uh, uh, everyone can understand the differences in uh, the thought process between unroofing of the coronary artery uh, and uh, translocation or uh, re-implantation of the anomalous coronary. Um, it's very important to look at uh, the uh, position of the coronary ostium in the wrong sinus and uh, the presence or absence of an intramural course. Um, the Unroofing is uh, the, pro the procedure that's preferred for uh, uh, coronaries that has an intramural course where uh, you unroof the coronary artery and uh, therefore the ostium will be relocated back into the normal uh, or the expected sinus. Um, and uh, there are a few tips and pitfalls, of course, to try to make sure uh, you don't compromise the commissure of the aortic cusp, which is always close by. Um, and therefore, uh, this was demonstrated in a 15-year-old in a um, who was symptomatic uh, before, before the procedure. And the other was more in an adult patient uh, who had uh, anomalous uh, uh, origin of the coronary artery. It was actually quite high, but it ran in an interarterial, which means between the aorta and the pulmonary roots. And we translocated or re-implanted that by excising a button from the uh, uh, aorta and moving the coronary artery. And one of the important uh, tips here is if we uh, consider re-implantation uh, for the coronaries that does not have intramural course, it always have to go higher on the aorta, especially in obese patients or when the right ventricle has a lot of epicardial fat because that can kink the coronary artery very easily. Um, so demonstrating these two techniques together, I think, is helpful to uh, understand the differences between the two strategies. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. Beautifully demonstrated. It's a really wonderful video. And just as a second question, seeing as you say you didn't get into the issue of when to fix these, maybe give us a little two minutes sort of when should somebody, if, if, they, if they approach this or see this, when should they recommend somebody have surgery and when can you tell them to, to go away and just have conservative follow up? Um, I think uh, there has to be, uh, uh, there are multiple factors that are considered here. Uh, number one is the age of the patient. Um, uh, so finding it in a 60-year-old uh, is different than finding it in a 15-year-old. Um, the uh, presence or absence of symptoms uh, make things easy uh, as regarding the decision. However, the difficulty when you have asymptomatic patient with anomalous, uh, especially right coronary, uh, where we all worry about the risks of sudden death and um, uh, there are many controversy about uh, the risk of sudden death versus the risk of the actual uh, operation itself. 
However, uh, there are certain features that can be considered uh, when we look at the CT scan, uh, what we call a high risk features, such as long intramural course, uh, a slit like orifice of the coronary ostium, um, and uh, uh, the presence or, or, or absence of symptoms on exercise. Uh, there are some uh, uh, centers will go into more detailed evaluation pre-op, uh, such as uh, intravascular ultrasound and uh, uh, stress testing, etc. Uh, so these are all uh, should be put together and have a discussion with the with the patient uh, regarding risks and benefit, especially when they are asymptomatic. Uh, we tend to be conservative a little bit when they are older um, uh, and a little bit more aggressive when they are younger uh, to try to uh, resolve the issue. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. So those are the videos and the articles we've got for you. Um, we're just going to go through some of the really interesting events that are coming up uh, very shortly. So the EAX is offering an aortic forum. Uh, you've got to go there. It's in person only. Get on the plane, get going. It's on the 21st to the 23rd of June. And the real pull for this is the stellar uh, lineup they've got. They've got Professor El Khoury, who's uh, and they've got Professor Schaefer's for aortic repair, and they've got Magdi Yacoub and Tyrone David. So you can't really get better than that for an amazing aortic valve uh, forum. So it looks really, really fantastic. Uh, the second event I think is really interesting. So artificial intelligence in cardiothoracic surgery. This is online and it's free. It's on June the 20th and, and uh, Dr. Roger Diaz, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Harvard Medical School, is going to explore the potential applications of artificial intelligence in cardiothoracic surgery. I have no idea what he's going to say. I've actually registered for it and I want to see what he says. So I think that could be great. It's free. Uh, feel free to register. We've got a link uh, down below, so go check it out. And the third one um, is an adult ECMO specialist course, uh, 22nd of the 23rd uh, in the Woodlands Medical Center, USA. Uh, go check that out if you want to learn everything you've always wanted to know about ECMO but were afraid to ask. And finally, we always finish with uh, two little small sets. Where is Diego, the world's most wildest thoracic surgeon? And he has been busy uh, this week. First of all, he was uh, in Milan giving a talk on uniportal robotics to the ESTS. He then popped up uh, in the Brompton Grand Rounds, and then he has uh, launched an amazing amazing video about the brand new Shanghai Pulmonary Hospital training program. They have built a whole new load of buildings. They're now the world's biggest program, 140 operations a day in 20 theatres. Uh, and go check that out. We'll put a link uh, down below if you want to have your eyes pop out with the amazingness of what they have built there. So well done to Diego. And finally, an honourable mention goes to Patrick Myers. Patrick Myers is Secretary General of EACS and they've been busy this week in Windsor creating the programme for EACS in October. He led this and, and there was loads and loads of people. There's going to be some really new interesting sessions coming uh, and um, Patrick's just done so much work for this. And of course, Sammy, he's a congenital surgeon. So... Um, uh, do you know Patrick uh, Sammy? What do you think absolutely. about him? Uh, absolutely a great uh, uh, role model and uh, done too many things for the EAX and uh, CTSNF. Uh, absolutely. The only thing he doesn't do is sleep. So uh, that's all we've got time for. Uh, Sammy, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the call. Uh, we're looking forward to many, many more of your amazing videos and, uh, and it's been really wonderful to have you. 
thank you so much, uh, Jules, and thanks to the CTSNF for uh, this wonderful opportunity and uh, looking forward to uh, working together in the future. Great, thank you. And thank you, everybody, for staying it out half an hour all the way to the end. And uh, please do tune in next week for our next edition of the CTSNet podcast. Mm-hmm.